Okay, thank you for coming back uh, today, continuing the reading of the book Nityananda in Divine Presence. This is uh, episode 13, uh, looking into uh, the conclusion, the concluding chapters of the book. Last week we read, or last time I read the afterword, and today we will go into the second to last chapter called Remembering the Master. Uh, before that, I would like to just read the last few paragraphs again of the last chapter, the afterword, which is the last section of that chapter called So Say the Stars, which was supposedly a very uh, specific type of Vedic astrological reading called Nadi Granta. Nadi probably means energy lines, like the chakras and the nadis in the subtle body, being meridians in Chinese medicine, being energy lines for prana or chi. Uh, this is the, the very high detail level of Vedic astrological reading. And uh, in this last section of the last chapter, there was a presentation of this Nadi Granta reading for Captain Hatengi, who uh, asked for the reading in 1970 when he was older. In I have seen, I once had an astrolo- a Vedic astrological reading. It was very specific in terms of predictive forecasting, predictive astrology, which is, uh, you know, of some value. Mm, sometimes it's better to have a character reading, meaning uh, strengths and weaknesses and challenges and opportunities in terms of spiritual development and one's mind and tendencies, or opportunities and um, life situations uh, that are likely or something like that. But the predictive astrology um, at least in this case uh, was uh, pertaining to uh, Captain Hatengi then uh, saying that at the age of 28 I mean, you know, this was done after Nityananda had passed he passed in 61 the reading was 1970 Um, at a much younger age of 28 in the chart it was shown that he would quote meet a great being who would affect his life quite favorably and this is the description of that being that Mr. Hatengi was astrologically indicated to have met at age 28 which is right before Saturn return so it was an important time for him <clears throat> personally that he met Nichinanda and so here's the read the the write up of that description of the being he was supposed to have met or did meet at 28 and I think that it looks all quite accurate to me okay he came to the world for the sake of his devotees a great yogi nothing is known of his birth or his age he has fed thousands of sannyasis and sadhus while ever in samadhi he talks while ever with atman he's never in the body He talks directly to God, long-limbed with a vibrant personality. He sometimes goes naked and sometimes wears a loincloth. Although few recognize him, he is God in human form, meaning the Logos. He is called by a name beginning with the letter N. He sits near hot springs and a Shiva temple and does not engage in outward activities, giving the impression of doing nothing. Money he takes from his loincloth as needed. He removes difficulties and occasionally prescribes medicines. Ignorant people never see his true nature. While these words cannot possibly relate his greatness, a devotee will come in due course and describe him properly, which was Captain Natengi, I believe, <coughs> who helped compile this book. Others who write about him will succeed only if they are inspired by him, and then only if he wishes it. Eventually, books will be written about him, and many will make money in his name. At the time, I don't think many have made much money in his name, but maybe in India. At the time of this reading, he is no longer in human form. His many devotees include highly evolved sannyasis and members of royalty. Numerous ashrams and shrines are built in his honor, 
but he never recognized or initiated disciples. No one was fit to receive the knowledge of God from him, meaning no one was fit to <laughs> take over his work. <clears throat> Although he has taken Masamadi, his blessings remain with his devotees. When you think of him, he is with you. Anyone who approaches him with a purity of motive is granted their wish. <clears throat> How can we describe such a being? He might deliver harsh words or actions, saying, Mati, Mati, it is of no consequence, but blessings always fall on the recipient. He sees with equal sightedness, treating everyone the same, regardless of social position, but people pursue him with material desires, not with spiritual aspirations. Still, <clears throat> his guiding light is always available to both the, de both the devout and the spiritual seeker. Sadly, most devotees never really knew him. No one was powerful enough to succeed him or receive what he could grant, but he still blesses the devotees and he remains without disciples. And so that seems quite accurate to me. And <clears throat> this notion of treating everyone the same regardless of social position is not that, it, it's um, a little bit more nuanced than it seems, I think. Uh, treating everyone the same is to see what is common in all beings. What is common is God, is light, is uh, being a manifestation of the Creator, uh, divinity, the, the sacred spark, uh, the true nature. Uh, all is one, <laughs> so it's all, all the many are, are forms and differentiated appearances of source, of God, of Logos, of intelligent infinity. That's the sameness recognized, I think. What's also recognized with wisdom, obviously, is the fact that everyone's different. And in time and space, those differences are acknowledged. And the greater the teacher, the greater their discernment, for sure. And with that discernment, they can see um, the, the idiosyncrasies of each person. And so Nityananda could see who comes to him purely and who didn't, who came with a sincere material need and who came with greedy material need or desire, right? Sincere need, uh, like, please heal my son, or uh, greedy material desire, such as give me the lucky number so I can make a lot of money so I can show people I'm better than them. Something like that. So, um, anyone who approaches him with purity of motive is granted their wish, so he could determine who the, the, the relative purity of the motives of the people who approached him, of course. And, um, like any super great teacher, their people around them are, are quite well developed in their own right. <laughs> like, Many highly many highly evolved sannyasis and members of royalty, um, meaning whatever royalty is, but highly evolved beings surround the even more highly evolved teacher, like around Gautama. Same thing. I mean, any one of the chief any one of the foremost disciples and the two chief disciples, Sariputta Mahamogalana, any one of those disciples which are not devotees, those are disciples, initiates, trained um, seekers. Any one of them <laughs> is greater than nearly anyone around uh, on the earth today. Yet they all congregate around an even greater uh, light, like Gautama, and here with Nityananda too. And um, uh, ignorant people don't see his true nature, uh, most devotees even never really knew him. It's commonly like that. And and all these other qualities of uh, he's got money, he, he, sometimes he's naked, sometimes he's not, sometimes he eats, sometimes he doesn't, sometimes he's here, sometimes he's there, doesn't seem to be doing anything, but nobody knows anything about what he's really doing. Uh, that's him. <laughs> that's very much of his purpose in coming to Earth, I think. And uh, from the previous uh, paragraph or a previous section uh, chapter, Nityananda's Passing Part 2 uh, I think it's just critical, really the, the reiterating 
uh, some of the points, uh, his teaching. Um, I guess I'll do that at the end today. The, 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 the paragraph at the end of that section that uh, Nityananda's passing part two, where presumably he gave some direct teaching and it was compiled here, saying, um, let, uh, this ashram's practice is not in doing good deeds. Although they did a lot of good deeds. They fed a lot of people and established a hospital and a boarding house, all sorts of things. And that's what he left when he left was all, all uh, those physical structures and the administrative staffing uh, and protocol to keep them going, which were doing lots of good deeds. But that was not what he really was all about. <clears throat> he said, this ashram's practice is learning to be detached, vairagya, renunciation, dropping the unnecessary. And uh, for him, <laughs> all sorts of things were unnecessary, like eating and sleeping and uh, body care. I mean, uh, meditating on burning rocks on the gun near the Ganges for hours and hours, or sleeping on a string, or standing in a tree on one leg for hours. Um, his level of detachment from material obligation or material uh, laws of physics even um, is remarkable, obviously, and singular. There's, there's, you know, there's nobody like that. There's nobody around like that. And <clears throat> while it's true that there are many other fine teachers, right? Jack Goldstein, Joseph Gold, jo Jack Cornfield, Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, all the people from Vipassana, all these people who are psychologists, Daniel Goldman maybe, all these folks, they're offering a lot of value to a lot of people too. And yet, they really are, and should be known in a different category. Same thing with Gautama versus, uh, you know, Ra versus Bashar, or Gautama versus, uh, I don't know, Sai Baba, doing miracles and uh, magic manifesting vibhuti from his hand. People should know. Mm, I mean, for those with eyes to see, um, relative levels of development or levels of relative development are quite clear um, among teachings and teachers. Uh, it's very important. <laughs> and, and if you really want to know um, the heart would um, pith teachings like the principles of transformation of my body spirit right not just a little of this and a little of that they eat uh, ambrosia in fifth density oh that's cool but how about principles of soul evolution like healing and balance from raw or principles of um, development of harmlessness like brahma viharas or ten directional meta meditation these very specific things Yet, uh, and and Nichinanda, the the example of radical detachment, and anything is possible. The miraculous is ever possible, demonstrating perfectly Nichinanda uh, Ra's teaching that the physical and metaphysical are inseparable. Perfect demonstration of that teaching. Ra talks about it. Nichinanda shows it. Uh, and and Gautama talking about. Um, the basis of um, the path being um, also detachment and effort and exertion, right? Pabana, padana, sama padana, like yesterday. How important that is. Um, that these are pith teachings, and um, for those with eyes to see, we can see the difference between the heartwood and the um, bark. Bark is nice. Uh, but there is a difference between bark and heartwood. Uh, there's a difference between transient information and essential teaching. There's a difference between path teaching and um, points of wisdom. And points of wisdom are important, um, but that's not necessarily a path teaching. Or it may be a very minor teaching on the path, while there are major teachings on the path, in terms of path being transformation of seven chakras, mind-body-spirit, or total self-transformation. So, uh, discernment is important. So, let me um, read the second to last chapter, Remembering the Master. 
it begins. Captain M. U. Hatengi, retired naval secretary at naval headquarters in New Delhi, was a long-time disciple, actually more like devotee, of Nityananda. This chapter is his story. He wrote, "I remember first seeing Nityananda when I was five years old. It was 1920, and he was in the cattle shed of the late Colonel V. R. Mirai." Uh, Miraj, Miraj, Mirajkar. I'm not sure if that's correctly spelled. Mirajkar in Mangalore. Mangalore, a very special place. 1920, he was in the cattle shed of the late Colonel V. R. Miraj, Mirajkar in Mangalore. Many years later, the famous surgeon recounted that on returning home after eight years abroad. He had argued with his mother about the young master to whom she was devoted. He did not understand how a woman so fastidious about cleanliness could tolerate him. This was because so this is 1920, Nityananda's 25 or so. This was because in those days the reclusive, rail-thin youth was as likely to be found on a doormat or a dunghill as anywhere, right? D- detachment, vairagya. Or insanity, you may say. <laughs> Some people may think the colonel's mother ordered her son to mind his own business. He regretfully told me that decades passed before he recognized Nityananda's greatness for himself. So he's a colonel, he's a surgeon, he's a ho- big shot among the humans, <laughs> and doesn't see truth. Uh, doesn't see the light. Doesn't see glory in front of him. In the early 1930s, in his 30s, Nityananda still wandered South India, and for a long time passed before, and a long time passed before I saw him again. In fact, it was only when I felt an urgent desire for a spiritual teacher that a cousin who visited Ganesh Puri whenever he traveled to Bombay agreed to take me to the ashram. And so it passed that on June tenth, nineteen forty-three. So this is twenty-three years later. Um, from you know, so he's in. He's at twenty-eight. I had my first darshan with the master. The experience evoked in me feelings of reunion with a long-lost friend and an unusual inner peace. I remember not being nervous despite his silence that morning. Later, as he stood on the tiny porch outside his room, I boldly asked him three questions. He gave suitable answers about the third, although the third concerned mundane matters, and his response seemed to imply that I should have known better than to ask it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> sometimes people should know better than to ask questions whose answer they already know. Don't bother people. Don't bother people. After that, I saw the master every Sunday for a while. On one visit, a young man ran up to me outside the ashram and asked if he could come. Saying that I thought everyone was welcome, I brought him along. Nichinanda was away, but we soon saw him approaching from the direction of the river. He seemed to be shouting at the stranger by my side. Entering the ashram, the master shouted again, asking the startled man who had brought him. And then told him to leave. Turning to me, he said, "Never put yourself out to anyone here. People come with different predilections, which is vasanas in Sanskrit, and it's not for you to interfere." My subsequent strict compliance with this directive brought me problems later on, but no matter. I now understood the necessity of keeping to myself and not becoming distracted from my spiritual practice. This is um, I'll read the whole thing and then come back to that. On these early visits, the master was often away when I arrived, and it might be an hour before he appeared. I always waited anxiously until I saw him, because there were few people about, and the ashram felt empty. Unaware of his habitual and sudden disappearances, he's leaving his body. He's putting his body someplace and leaving. Leaving with his body、uh, dematerializing, or he's parking his body somewhere under a tree or in a cave and leaving. So, 
I always waited anxiously until I saw him because there were few people about and the ashram felt empty. Unaware of his habitual and sudden disappearances, I thought that perhaps he traveled to Kanangad periodically, and so I asked him. He replied, This one won't go anywhere in the future, only here. As if to avoid further queries, he added, Moreover, traveling these days is difficult. This sounds like today. This was during the Second World War, when civilians were advised to travel only if necessary. After that, Nichinanda was always present when I came, either sitting on the cement porch or in his room. The years from 1944 to 1948 were golden for me. Happily stationed near Bombay, I spent a weekend every month in Ganeshpuri, often alone with the master. He always greeted me affectionately in Konkani, asking, Have you come? <laughs> that has a double meaning, of course. Meaning, how present are you? Are you here? Is, is your true nature here? Are you with your true nature? Has, has conscious mind and true nature become unified yet? Certain other patterns developed during these visits. For instance, he would point to the room I was to occupy there being only two, one on either side of his own. The peculiarity was that I always stayed in the rooms by turn without deviation. My activities also followed a routine. First I would bathe in the hot springs and then sit to the left of the entrance. Invariably, he always sat on the first step with the narrow door sill completely blocking my view of him. He never sat facing me. In fact, he would sit for half an hour or more and then walk around only to return to the same spot. This usually went on throughout the waking hours of my visits, which mostly passed in silence. In the beginning, the moment Nichinanda sat down near me, I would become drowsy and utilize all of my self-control to stay awake. Gradually, this experience subsided. I never asked its significance, thinking that sitting near him was simply a form of meditation. <laughs> That's also an interesting metaphysics. Punctually at 10 o'clock every night, he asked me to retire and close the doors. <clears throat> then, after extinguishing the small kerosene lamp, I lay in total darkness listening to the jungle serenade of frogs and crickets and watching glowworms light the trees with rhythmic regularity. The master would slowly push open my door at the same time every morning and stand there. And, I can't explain how, but my eyes opened every time he stood there in the darkness. As soon as he saw that, he would say, It's four o'clock. Close the door and walk away. I would rise at once, bathe, and take my place near the entrance. He then joined me for coffee, usually served black and sweetened with ghee, clarified butter, because milk was scarce. The affection he showed me was particularly evident when we sat by ourselves after these morning coffee sessions. Such weekends of peace and happiness made me long for his company, and I eagerly awaited the monthly rituals. So he was the closest one to Nichiranda for many years, it seems. Very beautiful. <clears throat> so in the future, Mr. Hatengi will be a great guru for himself, for sure. Many people have told me that the Master's presence in their lives gave them a tangible sense of security. I know I always felt that he watched over me, and an incident from 1946 illustrates this. <clears throat> it was dark, and the grounds were slippery and treacherous. On my way to the baths, I fell and cut my leg on the sharp stones. In pain and bleeding badly, I washed the wound with rainwater until I thought the bleeding had stopped and then had my bath. Later, I was evaluating the injury in my room when Nichinanda appeared suddenly, poured a little sandalwood oil on the exact spot, and left as he had come without a word. I have stated that our time together, and that was the whole story, <clears throat> I have stated that our time together mostly passed in silence. However, he did occasionally speak and his words to me at the close of my third visit were particularly significant. In life, he said, when a person overcomes one obstacle, another presents itself. This process continues until one's experience is complete 
and the mind is able to face any situation with the right perspective. To me, this was a disheartening idea because I was still young and nursed a number of worldly ambitions. <clears throat> to view life as an obstacle course was not a happy prospect. Still, having sought him out for my spiritual development and not worldly gain, I knew there would be no ultimate disappointment. Already I felt blessed with a strong inner security and a longing for more of his grace. The master's conversation could appear casual, and years might pass before I appreciated his meaning. For instance, he broke one evening's silence by uttering the solitary sentence that the words of Jesus could also be found in the Bhagavad Gita. This was something about which I was quite ignorant at the time. At other times I discovered that words spoken by him earlier were destined to be fulfilled. Later I heard that when asked how to recognize someone who had attained divine wisdom, Nichinanda replied that the words of such a person, or a jnani, were always fulfilled. In 1944, so this is not just somebody with some wisdom, <laughs> this is a person who's uh, at one with higher self um, and has metaphysical or multidimensional awareness and power. In 1944, I suffered a tormenting period of inadequacy regarding my spiritual practice. I did not ask him what I should do in fear that he would prescribe some severe breathing exercises or mantra intonation. One night, as we sat together, I hesitantly asked whether there was a particular book he would advise me to read. His response was instant. It's not necessary, but if you must, read the Bhagavad Gita. And so then there's a note where to find it online. There are many versions. The best version I wouldn't know. That's a challenge. Um, the person, the, the, the individual who does my web postings, or my podcast postings, um, I think did commentary on the Bhagavad Gita and Ramayana. Ramayana. So those are probably fine versions. Nichinanda's general disinterest in worldly events never surprised me, but I knew he was aware of them. It was two days after Lord Mountbatten became Viceroy that I arrived at the ashram for my monthly weekend. Sitting near me, the master said, while Mountbatten is a good naval officer, he lacks experience in politics. And certainly today, an objective historian could substantiate this view. And there's a note here that Nichinanda's awareness of global events was amazing, particularly in the early days at Ganeshpuri, due to the facts that the jungle ashram was isolated with no television or newspapers of any kind. <laughs> of course, he's going out of body or he's transmitting mind, <clears throat> transmitting consciousness into uh, London and other nations to uh, investigate what's going on. One Saturday night, with India's independence only four weeks away. Nichinanda made some weighty pronouncements about the future. First he asked, what does Swaraj mean? And that was um, part of the call around Gandhi for independence. Swaraj. <clears throat> what does Swaraj mean? Defining it as freedom or self-rule, he said that India needed additional time to complete its training hinting that considerable begging and suffering remained for our country. He seemed to say that India's continued dependence on outside assistance would limit our freedom. He added that greedy parties were forcing the situation in the same way that people try to force fruit to ripen before its time. He even predicted our country's division into several states because of petty rivalries and jealousies and everything he said has come to pass. I notice he has no rancor towards uh, people like Mountbatten, etc. <clears throat> I am attached to rancor to the evil. Uh, I was unable to understand at that time, being overwhelmed like others by the euphoria of India's potential future and greatness, I remember foreigners saying that with so much horsepower, we only had to press the accelerator. Alas, today's reality falls short of yesterday's hopes. 
India is a real mess, actually. I was there in April last year. Super mess. Months later, in September 1947, I again heard the Master speak about a great national leader. He said that little time remained for this individual, and he wondered whether he was satisfied yet with his fame and accomplishments. <clears throat> Why, Nichananda asked, did he not simply retire from politics, close his eyes, and think of God, for God would come to him, implying that he was a spiritually advanced soul? He added that a person alone, regardless of greatness, cannot do everything. Instead, we should each treat life as a relay race, covering the bit of track meant for us as fast as possible before passing on the baton. Four months later, Mahatma Gandhi was assassinated. So, very deep teaching here. <clears throat> and um, I want to make comments on various points of the chapter. Probably from the back to the front, but certainly uh, the uh, last section of this chapter, which began <coughs> with Nichinanda's general disinterest in worldly events. Um, interest, no interest. Um, I think he wasn't interested in human politics but he was certainly much interested in planetary evolution. Big difference? Not human social, but planetary uh, metaphysical. And that, to me, is shown not only by my sense of part of what he was doing when he was appearing to do nothing, but also that uh, when he died or left, uh, that was what uh, one of the devotees' ch son, child, mentioned as the basis for his departure at that time was to help this so-called assembly of sages basically a higher dimensional ashram like an upper astral plane ashram or the confederation or the council of saturn one of these groupings of uh, highly advanced beings in higher dimensions assisting evolution on the planet needing his participation needed in that grouping to offset the Ashtanga, the, the um, what, the malefic effect, astrologically, energetically speaking, of the Ashtanga confluence of planets and sun, uh, planets and stars, or planets and signs in 1962, February 62, that he was needed by this assembly of sages for a particular function that only he could play. It's a particular um, a, it's a particular facet in, in the ritual, like an, a facet of the diamond at a certain angle, a certain size, a certain clarity, a certain angle, uh, a certain position, therefore a certain function. Each is unique, like each snowflake is perfectly symmetrical but unique, or at least that's what I think. Likewise, beings that are uh, so highly evolved uh, retain a certain unique uh, metaphysical uniqueness, yet they've um, attained uh, a sort of uh, perfection, I mean there's quasi-perfection and total perfection, of the seven chakra system, of the seven dimensional vehicles of I is, all right. Who, who the body is not yourself, the mind, the spirit complex. None of them is the I. The I is the one that uses mind, body, spirit complex, or uses the seven chakras, seven energy fields. Right. It's the logos. Yeah, that's what I is. Is I is its source, using the vehicles of mind, body, spirit complex, or mind, body, spirit complex, beingness, and totality complex, and some density, and all that those are the vehicles that's not the self the one that uses that is the one and so um, the perfection of those vehicles seven dimensional vehicles uh, is unique for each um, one <laughs> for each aspect of the one each one in its own unique form <clears throat> has its own unique uh, product or its perfection of the seven rays uh, yields a unique product 
and so Nick Trianda had his own unique product, <clears throat> and and his uh, particular teaching was detachment or um, this this um, focus on the essential. Uh, <clears throat> on the essential, not not the outer. So anyway, in terms of um, his perspective on politics, the last point I think is very important. A person alone, regardless of greatness, cannot do everything. So he said, anything is possible in that any mir- miracle, any total healing, anything is possible. Anything that could be imagined and all that cannot be imagined by us with our limited mind is possible because this is a magical situation if you hadn't noticed and yet still any person alone who may be great like he's attributing to Gandhi is unable to do everything and so uh, Gandhiji uh, from Nichinanda's perspective knew that he'd be dying soon or assassinated he wondered whether he was satisfied yet with his own fame and accomplishments meaning was he not yet satisfied that he had done his part or done enough <clears throat> and he wasn't not I think I mean I don't know Gandhiji's mind but I don't it doesn't look like he was such a fame follower but he obviously felt responsibility and Nichinanda's perspective was you did enough why didn't he retire from politics, close his eyes, and think of God? Well, God would come to him. Meaning, he would have achieved some great attainment. Or, what? Some level of attainment. Uh, if he had left it, uh, where left, left his engagement, entanglement, <laughs> engagement with the collective social, political, uh, before his death. And and so this is just something <coughs> that is is very. Um, there's much. I mean, I could probably do a lecture, or one of anyone could think very deeply and come to many conclusions just from this last paragraph. Uh, we wanderers uh, are very concerned about the human collective, at least those who are relatively aware that they're wanderers. And there are other people who are not wanderers who are co- who are concerned with the collective too. Okay, but <clears throat> um, the relative effect of an individual upon the collective is um, very significantly misunderstood. At least from <laughs> my understanding, that I don't understand very much. <clears throat> Nichinanda's perspective here seems to be that no matter how great one being is. One individual, uh, there is a flow to the mo- to the collective that's beyond his or her ability to influence significantly, and so <clears throat> uh, while Swaraj, freedom and self rule, are great, he could say that ad- India, as a disciple, needed more time, and with when it wasn't when when self rule freedom came. Uh, at that time in the middle of the 20th century <clears throat> um, India wasn't ready from his perspective and that that was akin to forcing fruit to ripen before its time and that would lead to all sorts of trouble and suffering and then the country would divide into some places and that's basically Pakistan uh, Bangladesh and East Pakistan and all that <clears throat> And, I mean, today you have Jammu and Kashmir still uh, in dispute. So you have Jammu and Kashmir, you have East Pakistan that became Bangladesh, you have Pakistan and India that still have a lot of trouble. Uh, It seemed that Nichinanda would say that Swaraj came to India before it was ready. And then that there also are all of these petty rivalries and jealousies and greedy humans and you know, <laughs> they make trouble. And so, uh, the uh, capacity of an individual 
to bring love wisdom to the collective is very very limited and so he added that a person alone regardless of greatness cannot do everything so Gandhiji as a great soul Mahatma Mahatma still um, was extremely limited in what he could do um, for the collective and uh, it's just that way <laughs> and and that's a simple point uh, I think a deeper point is that um, the inner work is really more valuable um, that uh, why was it I mean Nityananda was doing so-called outer work but on the metaphysical or at the metaphysical at metaphysical levels uh, he knows about Lord Mountbatten from his uh, jungle ashram in India uh, but his perspective is that um, the outer like Ross said is transient and will pass away and our ability to make it um, ideal or utopian bringing love light to it and um, having people also move to love light is extremely limited much more than we commonly care to admit and so people say it's easier to give service to other than to help or heal oneself I always say that that's because the standard we apply in helping others is so much lower than the standard we apply in helping ourselves, healing or developing or learning internally because we feel our pain not removed by <laughs> you know <clears throat> by uh, certain efforts to help ourselves while we don't feel the pain of the other that isn't removed as well while we uh, attempt to be of service and think that we've helped them we might have helped them but we don't feel their pain and even if they say thanks a lot you help me that's actually a very low standard that's great it's good and um, helping oneself we can feel the pain uh, that remains when the help self-help healing is not effective and yet um, we can't take society with us you can't take it with you the body and material possessions uh, many human relationships we can't take with us as well you see that in Nosolar, Austral City <clears throat> no matter how close those souls were um, sometimes they were uh, they came to incarnation in the same family sometimes not Dr. Louise, his mother was at a higher level he could hardly see her um, meaning uh, the love bond remains yeah, but beings go their own way after death and so you can't take it with you the body and material possessions uh, we can't take others and our relationship with them with our relations with them with us also only to a limited degree somewhat somewhat the, the more intimate or compatible the soul um, relationship the more the, the more the greater the likelihood that we'll be with them longer after death so-called death but many relationships are over pretty much uh, attenuate to near zero after death or on the other side so we can't take that with us either to any large degree but you certainly take yourself with you and your closest your cl you know beloveds the beloveds my beloveds come with me but that's not everyone that we know and it's not everyone we want or love or like or hope to be with um, and so there, there's um, it, it's not that we're wandering alone after death at all uh, only people who are really stuck in human attachments become a wandering ghost hungry ghost like in, Ram, in, in Buddhism Petta but <clears throat> um uh, Nichinanda's focus, uh, focus teaching or predominance of um, emphasis on vairagya and renunciation was a renunciation of all that you can't take with you. <laughs> was letting was an encouragement to let go of all the inessential, 
and all the inessential is ultimately what we can't take with us. That doesn't mean we should not have relationship or not develop relationship. Of course, I'm not saying that at all. But what you what we really take with us is um, this mind stream, this apparent sense of self uh, called a beingness that is currently here and um, eventually gone. And <clears throat> um, one person alone, regardless of greatness, cannot do everything. And there are many other tendencies in the collective that are far more powerful. And, and he's saying that of himself, too. I mean, world wars raged during his lifetime. You think he wanted it? You think he was happy? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, but he couldn't stop it. He didn't stop it. He couldn't stop it. Maybe he could have caused an earthquake and stop it. <clears throat> but that's infringement. And so all sorts of um, karmic streams must be allowed to flow on. Uh, this is important. And same thing with parents and a child. Um, I don't have children, physical children, maybe astral, but... <clears throat> uh, the parent, it's very difficult to uh, acknowledge the child's path that is quite independent from the parent even despite a parent's tremendous love to protect and, and help a child. The child has, to, has their own karmic stream. Is there is a independent karmic stream <clears throat> and must go its own way or has to, will go its own way um, with joy and sorrow. And um, that's the way it goes. And then that point when <clears throat> one cannot force fruit to ripen before its time uh, it applies to the entirety of development on the path as well. That um, uh, much, much development, uh, spiritual development, and development even of relationship and all sorts of things, or development of understanding not just development of certain qualities, but development of knowing, of clear view, or ability to help others, or ability to understand others, uh, comes in its own time when we um, plant healthy seeds in healthy soil and water and sun and take good care of, um, of the sprout and uh, of, those, of that growth. Uh, takes time nevertheless so <clears throat> uh, and it's the same kind of uh, detachment that's seen in Nichiren on, in the story from Hatengi about um, uh, at, this young man comes up to him and asks if he could come bringing him along um, uh, tell uh, the the startled man or telling the guy to leave. <laughs> I don't know whether he brought two people or brought one person, but turning to Captain Natengi at the end, he says, never put yourself out to anyone here. It, it sort of means um, don't do my work. <laughs> people come with different predilections or vasanas. It's not for you to interfere. Uh, we shouldn't be interfering when we're trying to be of service to others. When we're trying to help anyone, we should not interfere. When you're trying to help anyone, we should be very aware not to make trouble. Don't be a troublemaker. Why? Well, why we know. But how? Uh, do uh, How is it that we well-meaningly make trouble? Sometimes, well, one way <clears throat> is a presumption, presumptive uh, assumption. Assumptions, presumption that... Uh, it's my work to do when it in some cases is not or they will benefit from me are you sure have you checked it or um, the person's just emotionally driven we're uncomfortable listening to their distorted view <laughs> or we're uncomfortable with them in their emotional pain do you know you should intervene do you know it's best? Do you know they're ready to receive everything you say? 
Maybe. Maybe not. It's worth looking into. Uh, look before you leap, or look and contemplate before you speak. Sometimes. I mean, I don't do that all the time at all. But I do want to understand the mind of the person I'm trying to help. Ross said, the best way to be of service to others is to be the one you intend to serve. Paraphrasing. To be the one you intend to serve <laughs> is to um, vibe with them, or resonate, which really means to find them within yourself, which means to, to know them by resonant, uh, a, a kind of resonance where we then can identify the quality of our resonance as being that which is resonant with them. <laughs> the quality of my vibratory resonance uh, is uh, informative about the one I'm resonating with. Of course. And so, <clears throat> um, that's important. I was just alerted by my De my dehumidifier. Just a moment. My dehumidifier buzzes. Panasonic's a good company, but not as good as one had hoped. But my buzzing dehumidifier alerted me. Turn me off, he said. Turn me on, dead man. Who knows that reference? That's a very strange PID reference. The faux Paul fall F A U L P I D Paul is dead. That whole community. There is a <laughs> line in a certain song uh, where John is claimed to have said, "Turn me on, dead man." Uh, only <laughs> specialists would know that. Anyway, uh, what's the time? A little bit. So. Um, this um, this detachment. I mean, this this is these are still um, uh, derivatives, or can be understood or traced back to Nichinada's primary teaching of vairagya or renunciation or detachment. Renunciation really means giving up what you don't need, which could be anything. It it you know it doesn't have to lead to austerity uh, yogi yogic austerity in the forest. That's one. That's an extreme and very high level potentially of uh, renunciation. But uh, detachment is also mm, a detachment from mistaken responsibility for others' evolution and a mistaken capacity to protect others from harm. In some cases, we cannot. In some cases, or a, a mistaken presumption of collective responsibility, meaning I believe my life is useless if I just sit here in my room and I don't post on Facebook or show the world what I know, or I'm useless if I'm disengaged. When I'm disengaged, I'm useless because my only use is in engagement and sharing and talking and changing the world. Well, that's a presumption. And um, one might want to look into that. Um, in this teaching to Captain Hatengi is um, he basically was sort of suggesting to him, as Hatengi said, uh, the necessity of keeping to myself and not becoming distracted from my spiritual practice. But the spiritual practice doesn't necessarily mean um, hardcore uh, technique like pr pranayama he was Nichinanda suggested he read Bhagavad Gita but um, Nichinanda didn't prescribe um, practices technique based practices he basically prescribed d detachment uh, detachment from, from all the inessential that's very <laughs> very subtle and and do your danda. And do your danda means fulfill um, horizontal obligation. The har the obligations interpersonally with others, our obligations to physical um, uh, well-being for self and those around us. That's not interfering. That's right rightful responsibility. Uh, with detachment. <laughs> 
that's pretty subtle, actually. It's sort of righteous or right engagement while uh, emotionally detached and and ever where ever ready to release mistaken assumptions and uh, identify when we're um, um, wrongly presuming and um, uh, generating conflict or doing harm. This is very subtle, actually. So, uh, going on... Um, I think we'll end on this section here. Nichinanda's comment that in... This is also very deep. In life, he said, when a person overcomes one obstacle, another presents itself. This process continues until one's experience is complete and the mind is able to face any situation with the right perspective. Yes, it's a disheartening idea. <laughs> Hatengi said, and I agree. Uh, unfortunately, I think it's true. And we're not here on vacation. You are not in this body, in this world, on vacation. We are not here on vacation. This is a business trip. Or <laughs> combat medic behind enemy, behind enemy lines. <laughs> the uh, uh, sleeping wanderer or um, partly hand-tied behind the back combat medic wanderer deep behind enemy lines in in the <laughs> the world in a uh, world uh, where the social complex is run more or less <laughs> from 4D negative while most of the people are not even capable of leaving their density and the leadership is <laughs> uh, intractably greedy and distorted and um, there's much paucity of honesty or lack of honesty uh, indeed this life and, and it really is the case in higher dimensions too but it's much more uh, visceral here we have a viscera but it's much more challenging here and because we have a visceral, a viscera, it's visceral, meaning uh, it's kind of gritty. Um, Saha world in Chinese Buddhism, like Kamaloka, is sometimes called the world of dust and shadows. Dust. It's a dusty, the dusty world. Shake off the dust of the world when you settle down, wash your feet. Uh, the dusty world with physical, fleshy body. Uh, is indeed, <clears throat> we can indeed experience the fact that challenges come one after another. It commonly happens that there's great joy and freedom after a massive dark night of the soul. Uh, sometimes the only way to um, glory, a glorious phase of life <laughs> in which there's great joy and well-being comes through of seriously dragged through the mud, dark night of the soul, crisis, miserable time. That may happen for a couple of years. Some astrological signs have that commonly boom-busting, 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 like Scorpio, common to the incarnative path. <clears throat> like Hilarion said, people with uh, names, character, with the letters uh, D and U, the sound D, letter D in the first name, and U, uh, those are commonly tagged to uh, incarnative first name uh, to remind the person this is going to be a hard lifetime. But for all, um, not being on vacation, not simply being here to help the planet either. We're also here to help ourselves. See, Ra's perspective is overbalanced in service to other or service as path. I mean, I... You know, I love Ra. <laughs> they're my my family, but um, they're not the last word either. And their whole the, the the very terminology that the 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 positive path. I mean, it's a blessing. <laughs> it's a it's a inestimable gift to me to the world that they even talk about the two paths. But characterizing the positive path or the path which 90% of the souls go on, the spiritual path, as service to other, is really problematic. 
not only does it generate or facilitate lots of confused people saying, if I take a bath and sleep long, am I on the path of service to self? Because I'm not helping other? Uh, not only that kind of confusion that uh, taking good care of yourself is mistakenly thought to be service to self, which it isn't. It's <laughs> service to other. Huh? That's the problem with the terminology. <clears throat> but there's the fact that they even put that as the terminology to define the path of seven ray transformation. It's not so. Um, and the last of the four purposes for which wanderers come, Ross said, was service was uh, work on one's own acceleration of one's own evolution. From Nichinanda's perspective, now maybe he's dealing with all three D souls, not wanderers, and it's a different story. But this uh, perspective is useful too. Uh, he's certainly beyond all the wanderers and certainly did massive service to all yet he's also saying no matter how great the soul you can't um, you can't make everything happen you can't change the collective you can't do everything and um, the purpose of this life from his perspective seems to be above all else to continue um, your one's own evolution and <clears throat> this means um, uh, not um, keeping to yourself, keeping, like Hitengi said, keeping to myself and not becoming distracted from spiritual practice, not becoming distracted certainly from the principles of our own evolution, service to other or being good friend is critical. Yeshua said there's no love greater than that a man ha uh, gives his life to his friends like that. I think so. <clears throat> that's a perfect teaching for souls going from third to fourth density. And that's uh, the heart of service to other, I think. <clears throat> Being a true good friend. Uh, wanting nothing but that the other is well. Well and happy. May all beings be well and happy. And then yet also um, incarnation is for evolution of mind, body, spirit. And service to other in the ways that are commonly thought <clears throat> are subsidiary. Um, because you see what happens is commonly people who, uh, I mean, there's, you know, there, there's excessive love of other, you know, <laughs> and deficient love of self. There's excessive, I mean, Rod talked about that all, you know, in terms of imbalance or the work of balance. There's there is the balance, balanced love of other and balanced love of self, or the balance of love of other to love of self. Love of self is not narcissism, because love is not grandiosity. It's acceptance and care and kindness and harmlessness. Don't fight yourself. Don't blame yourself. Leave self-judgment. Leave self-blame. Leave guilt and shame. Of course. <clears throat> but... Uh, there, the, this, his perspective, Nishiyama's perspective, being of both uh, danda, do your danda, do your responsibility, and um, don't get distracted from your work of self-transformation, is also uh, of detachment. Do your work not because you, you think that you can bring the world to utopia or save anyone, they have to save themselves. But because it's part of our path to fulfill our obligations, and we care about people, <laughs> hopefully, <clears throat> the people we're with. And so, uh, anyway, there are many, many points for consideration here. And um, I can't neatly tie it together, <clears throat> but um, under the under the sky, the chittakash of vairagya, the um, space, mind space, in which detachment <clears throat> from falsehood and the unnecessary and the inessential and the mistaken, the presumptuous that's mistaken, and attachments that are not needed or all that brings more suffering, under under within that space. Um, Fulfilling obligation, right, right obligation, do your danda, is mm, as much of keeping to oneself as it is service to other. <laughs> like this phrase, keep to yourself, don't become distracted from your spiritual practice. 
uh, <clears throat> doing being doing right by others is a form of keeping to oneself, <laughs> actually, and can keep us. And we may not have to be distracted from our seven ray or continued transformation. It, it's um, sort of right right proportionality in terms of and and the the right integration of um, the right use of will in um, relation to other and self-working and accepting what's theirs and not ours what's of the collective that's beyond our control or help or influence uh, and putting all that together in your own way if possible so that'll be it for today Uh, many ideas and I think um, much understanding can come from contemplation Next time, the final chapter, Remembering the Master, Part 2. And um, that will be the last chapter of the book, but the class will go on in some form. And uh, most likely we'll read uh, Sky of the Heart, although I can't find a PDF of it. So in any case, with these teachings or these perspectives in mind, uh, one may also be better able to... mm, work with the current global situation or the situation in America uh, which is uh, painful and difficult so please take good care of yourself and those around you Uh, thank you for being here see you next week and good night